This is Space Time, Series 22, Episode 78, for broadcast on the 25th of October, 2019. Coming up on Space Time, a new study suggests that some of the water on the Moon may be fairly recent, new organic compounds found in Enceladian ice, and what really happens under the Yellowstone supervolcano. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study suggests that water ice discovered on the lunar surface didn't all arrive at the same time, but may have accumulated over billions of years, with some deposits even being fairly recent. The discovery of ice deposits scattered across the moon's south pole has helped renew interest in exploring the lunar surface, but no one's really sure exactly how or when the ice got there. Most scientists think the moon got its water through debris from asteroid and cometary bombardment. Impact craters in the Moon's polar regions are deep enough to have floors that are kept in permanent shadow, so the sunlight never reaches the bottom and so can't cause the ice to evaporate. A new study published in the journal Icarus suggests constraining the ages of these deposits is important both for basic science and also for future manned exploration missions of the Moon, which could make use of that ice for fuel and for other purposes. The study's lead author, Ariane Deutsch from Brown University, says the ages of these deposits can potentially tell scientists something about the origin of the ice, and that will help scientists better understand the sources and distribution of water in the inner solar system. For exploration purposes, scientists need to better understand the lateral and vertical distribution of these deposits in order to figure out how to access them. Deutsch and colleagues used data from NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been circling the Moon since 2009, to determine the ages of the large South Pole craters thought to contain water ice deposits. Astronomers can date large craters by counting the number of smaller craters inside them, assuming that meteor impacts happen at roughly regular intervals. They found that the majority of the reported ice deposits are found within large craters that formed about 3.1 billion years ago or longer. Since the ice can't be any older than the crater, that puts an upper boundary limit on the age of the ice. Of course, just because the crater's old doesn't mean that the ice within them is also that old. But in this case, there's fair reason to believe that the ice is indeed fairly ancient. See, the ice deposits have a patchy distribution across the crater floors, and that suggests that the ice has been battered by micrometeoroid impacts and other debris over a long period of time. Now, if those reported ice deposits are indeed ancient, that could have significant implications in terms of exploration and potential resource utilisation. Deutsch says previous models of bombardment through time show that ice starts to concentrate with depth, so if you have a surface layer that's old, you can expect more underneath. While the majority of the ice was in ancient craters, the authors also found evidence for ice in smaller craters that, judging by their sharp, well-defined features, appear to be quite young and that suggests that at least some of the deposits at the lunar south pole must be relatively recent. And Deutsch admits that was somewhat of a surprise, because there hadn't been any observations of ice in younger coal traps before. And if there are indeed deposits of different ages, that suggests there may also have different sources. The older ice could well have been sourced from water-bearing comets and asteroids impacting on the surface, or through volcanic activity that's drawn water out from deep within the moon but Deutsch believes there aren't many big water-bearing impactors around in recent times, and volcanism's thought to have ceased on the moon more than a billion years ago. So, that means some recent deposits of ice would require a different source. 
perhaps bombardment from pea-sized micrometeorites, or even implantation by solar wind. Of course, the best way to find out for sure is to send a spacecraft there to get samples. And the good news is that appears to be on the horizon, with NASA's Artemis program expected to place people on the moon by 2024, as well as several precursor missions using robotic spacecraft. You're listening to Space Time. Still to come, we'll take another look at the most distant world ever visited by a spacecraft, Ultima Thule. NASA's Space Launch System, or SLS, production line about to get underway, and New Zealand launches its ninth Electron rocket. All that and more coming up on Space Time. New kinds of organic compounds, the ingredients of amino acids, have been detected in the plumes erupting from Saturn's ice moon Enceladus. A report in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society says nitrogen and oxygen-bearing compounds were discovered in molecules condensed into the ice grains ejected from geysers at the moon's south pole tiger stripes. The ice comes from a huge subsurface liquid water ocean which spews into spaces water vapour and ice grains forming Saturn's E-ring. The compounds were discovered in data from NASA's Cassini mission to the Saturnian system, which ended in 2017. Here on Earth, similar compounds are part of the chemical reactions that produce amino acids, the building blocks of life. Hydrothermal vents on the ocean floor provide the energy that fuels these reactions. Scientists believe Enceladus's hydrothermal vents may operate in a similar way, supplying the energy that causes the production of amino acids. Scientists don't yet know if amino acids are needed for life beyond Earth, but discovering the molecules that form amino acids could be an important piece of the puzzle. The new findings follow the same team's discovery last year of large, insoluble, complex organic molecules believed to float on the surface of the Enceladian Ocean. The team then went deeper in the recent work to find the ingredients dissolved in the ocean that are needed for the hydrothermal processes that would spur amino acid formation. You're listening to Space Time. Still to come, Southern Launch signs a deal to fly Perigee rockets out of South Australia, and in the science report, the dangers of feeding your pets raw meats. A new study has found that the deep mantle plume hotspot which feeds the Yellowstone supervolcano originates from the core mantle boundary under Baja, California, more than a 1,000 kilometres southwest of the caldera's current location. The findings, reported in the American Geophysical Union journal Geochemistry, Geophysics and Geosystems, provides new information about the processes going on deep inside the Earth. The Yellowstone supervolcano caldera in the western United States is massive, measuring some 72 kilometres across. The caldera formed during the last of three super-eruptions over the past 2.1 million years. Those eruptions are the Huckleberry Ridge eruption 2.1 million years ago, which created the Island Park caldera, the Mesa Falls eruption 1.3 million years ago, which created the Henry's Fork caldera, and the Lava Creek eruption approximately 630,000 years ago, which created the current Yellowstone caldera. The new study by Bernard Steinberger from the German Geoforschungszentrum is based on modelling of Earth's mantle. Now, according to the model, the Yellowstone supervolcano is caused by a mantle plume hotspot, a chimney-like structure which stretches thousands of kilometres down to the border of the Earth's core and mantle. Earlier studies based on the evaluations of earthquake seismic waves had already suggested that the plume originated under what is now Baja California. But the idea simply didn't fit in with the known movement of Earth's lithospheric tectonic plates. 
Most volcanoes are located on the borders of continental plates, either where material from the Earth's interior rises, as is the case in Iceland, or where one continental plate subducts under another and melts, as is the case along much of the Pacific Ring of Fire. In contrast to plate boundary volcanism, intraplate volcanism, such as Yellowstone and the volcanoes of the Hawaiian Islands, are caused by mantle plume hotspots under the Earth's crust. You can think of it sort of like a welding torch melting through a metal plate from below, where the mantle plume burns through the crust a volcano forms. That's how Hawaii came into being. The seismic data for Yellowstone, however, didn't provide a full picture of the plume, at least not until now. Earlier studies used refined measurement methods to study deeper parts of the plume using tomographic images. However, gaps still remained in the upper mantle. This new study helps fill these gaps, providing a more complete picture of the entire mantle plume. They found slow movements of the rock in the lower mantle, which are directed southwest relative to the surface. Like the plume of smoke from a steamship, the mantle plume moves from Baja California to the north-northeast, to what we know today as the Yellowstone supervolcano. You're listening to Space Time. Still to come, NASA signs a contract to put at least 10 SLS launch vehicles. And a new report links air pollution to increased risks of cardiovascular and respiratory death rates. Okay, let's take a short break from our program for a word from our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. Have you ever heard that phrase, you don't know what you don't know? When you think about it, it still holds true today for so many things, and that's where The Great Courses Plus comes in to help you fill those gaps. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service, one full of knowledge that never lets you stop learning. There are literally thousands of lectures on virtually any topic you can think of, even those you might not think of, and they're all presented by top professors, real experts in their fields. For instance, you can dive into the Hubble Space Telescope, find out about nuclear energy, understand science fiction as a philosophy, even learn how to play the piano or manage stress. The Great Courses Plus gives you a whole world of history, knowledge and ideas to explore. And the Great Courses Plus app makes it easy to watch or listen anywhere, anytime, during that boring daily commute to work, on that endless long-haul flight, or when you just need to chill out and relax. Now, last weekend, we went up to the Blue Mountains on a special steam train ride. So there were lots of photographs to be taken, lots of snapping to be done. And I found this great two-part series called The Fundamentals of Photography, presented by National Geographic photographer Joel Sato. Now, we've all seen those wonderful photographs in National Geographic. And here's the inside scoop on how to take them. Of special interest was some of the stuff on night photography. And it'll help you get your skills up to speed as well. And to get you started, we have a special offer for space-time listeners. Expand your mind and skills. Sign up now for The Great Courses Plus, and we'll give you a month for free. But to get your free month, you'll need to sign up using our special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash space. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash space. And as usual, you'll find all the URL details in the show notes and on the space-time website. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash space. And now, it's back to our show. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. An evocative new image sequence from NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has provided scientists with a departing view of the Kuiper Belt Object 2014 MU69, nicknamed Ultima Thule, and the target of its 2019 New Year's Day flyby. 
Now, these aren't the last images of Ultima Thule, which New Horizons will send back to Earth. In fact, many more are to come. But they are the final views New Horizons captured of the most distant world ever explored. The images were taken as New Horizons raced away at over 50,000 kilometres per hour. They were taken 10 minutes after New Horizons crossed its closest approach point at a distance of 8,862 kilometres. The images also contain more information about the shape of Ultima Thule, which has turned out to be one of the major discoveries of the flyby. The first close-up images of Ultima Thule, with its two distinct and apparently spherical segments, had observers calling it a snowman. However, follow-up analysis of the approach images and all the departure images have changed that view considerably, in part by revealing an outline of the portion of the carpet object that was not illuminated by the sun, but could be traced out as it blocked the view of background stars. Stringing these images together has confirmed that the two lobes of Ultima Thule may be round, but they're not spherical. The larger lobe, nicknamed Ultima, more closely resembles a giant pancake, and the smaller lobe, nicknamed Thule, is the shape of a dented walnut. The project's lead scientist, Alan Stern, from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, says scientists had an impression of Ultima Thule based on the limited number of images returned in the days around the flyby, but seeing more data has significantly changed their view. The departure images were taken from a different angle compared to the approach photos and reveal complementary information on Ultima Thule's shape. The object's illuminated crescent is blurred in the individual frames because of the relatively long exposure time used in the rapid scan to boost the camera's signal level. But the science team combined the processed images to remove the blurring and sharpen the thin crescent. Many background stars are also seen in the individual images, and watching which stars blinked out as the object passed in front of them allowed scientists to outline the true shape of both lobes, which could then be compared to the model assembled from analysing pre-flight images and from ground-based telescope observations. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Dr Fred Watson. OK, Fred, it's, it's like uh, visiting an old friend. We keep going back to the New Horizons probe and the data it's sending back, uh, not only the stuff from Pluto, but on New Year's Day, one of the great achievements in, um, I suppose, astronomical um, investigation or exploration was uh, the uh, passing by of the object known as Ultima Thule. Uh, Ultima Thule is revealing its secrets. We're seeing steadily higher resolution images. And of course, it takes a matter of time because of the, the very low bandwidth of the signals coming back from the New Horizon spacecraft at 6 billion kilo, six and a half billion kilometres away. That's because they're using the Australian NBN service. Um, no doubt that is the case, yes. <laughs> it's now seen at a resolution which is quite fine, actually, considering what we're looking at, 135 metres per pixel. But that uh, comes with a wide-angle camera or from a wide-angle camera on board New Horizons. And we know that the, the same image is also in the memory banks of New Horizons, taken at a much higher resolution by something called the Long Range Reconnaissance Imager, otherwise known as LORI, but that has not yet been downfed to the stations so we can see it. However, we've Certainly, we are getting some very, very enticing information from this uh, wide-angle view that we've got of Ultima Thule. It's about 33 kilometres from one end to the other. It's two blobs stuck together, one now called Ultima, the other 
Jubilee, if I remember rightly, the big one's Ultima. And you can already see evidence of cratering yes. on this body. Some very peculiar looking features. It, it's got the smaller part of the object, which is like the head of the snowman, the smaller ball, seems to have a huge crater in its side. With yeah, it small... looks like it's been hit hard by something big. Exactly, that's right. And no doubt there are others all over because that's how these things, how they come together by things crashing into them. But it's also interesting, though, that we can just see the image is basically the the sunlit side of Ultima Thule. But there is just a hint of what's called the Terminator. That's the division between the bright side and the dark side at the top of the image, where the sun is basically, the sunlight is just horizontal uh, mm. on the surface of Ultima Thule. And you can see a number of smaller craters or pits. It's not clear what they are. They could be the result of outgassing activity within the object itself, where gases are coming out for some reason or another, or they could be small impact craters. My guess is, looking at them with my expert eye, my guess is that it's the latter, that they are probably smaller impact craters. But it is just a fantastic thing to see. This is a basically a monochrome image that we're looking at, although the, there is colour available on that camera. We know it's already that it's a sort of pinkish-red colour. Lots of bright streaks on it, which also suggests that there is activity of some kind or has been on the surface because bright stuff on an object like this is usually the more recent stuff mm. uh, powder that's been deposited on the surface remember you can, you can certainly see that at the join where they've come together indeed that's right yeah um, it, it is going to be lightish in color and as you said the the neck region the snowman's neck is much brighter and the suggestion there is that that is powdery stuff that's fallen into the the crack between these two objects that when they came together so that they they actually um, they don't join as such they are just in contact so and what, what it, keeps them together fred and and could, they, could they be torn apart Gravity. yeah it's a great uh, look that's a great question which leads into something i was just about to say because one of my colleagues in canberra did a quick calculation when we saw the first images of what the pressure might be between them given the fact that we've got these two objects which both have not very much gravity but enough to hold them together and the pressure is is high it's in the regions of tons per square inch depending on just depending Depends on how much contact area there is between them. He, he was assuming he just took a, a wild guess as to what the contact area is between them. Of course, it's all, if it's all at one point, then it's a very high number. If, it's, if they've kind of flattened out a bit so that these two things have squashed together slightly, then the pressure holding them together is much less. It's so it's like surface tension, I suppose. It almost, respects. yeah. It, 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 that's right, and, and maybe you know there may be effects of that kind that uh, that that help to. It's basically gravity that's doing the job, but there could be interesting surface uh, effects going on at the neck region of the snowman. That's Dr. Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. NASA has ordered 10 Space Launch System or SLS rocket core stages, suggesting as many as 10 Artemis missions are to be flown. And these will include returning humans to the lunar surface in 2024. The 65-metre-tall, 8.5-metre diameter Space Launch System or SLS core stage is the centrepiece of NASA's new launch vehicle, the modern-day replacement for the mighty Saturn V Apollo moon rocket. Boeing is the lead contractor for the core stages that will fly on the first two Artemis missions. Artemis 1 is planned to be the maiden flight of the SLS, and it will be flown within the next two years to test the completed Orion capsule and the SLS launch system. 
During the mission, an unmanned Orion capsule will spend 10 days in a distant retrograde 60,000-kilometre-high orbit around the Moon before returning to Earth. The Artemis II mission will be the first manned mission of the program, carrying four astronauts into lunar orbit, flying within 8,900 kilometres of the lunar surface in either 2022 or 2023. After Artemis II, the power and propulsion element of the Lunar Gateway Space Station, as well as three components of an expendable lunar lander, are planned to be delivered on multiple launches from commercial launch service providers. And that'll set the necessary framework for what's to follow. This new order with Boeing will see SLS production continue for at least a decade. The SLS core stage is based on the Space Shuttle external fuel tank, it contains the cryogenic liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants and oxidizers that will feed the launch vehicle's four Aerojet Rocketdyne RS-25 rocket engines, which are also used on the Space Shuttle. The core stage also houses its own flight computers and avionics needed to control the rocket during the first eight minutes of the flight. And it will help support the twin strap-on solid rocket boosters, more technology from the Space Shuttle program. They'll provide 90% of the thrust needed to launch the rocket into orbit. Boeing's existing contract includes the SLS core stages for the Artemis I and Artemis II missions, as well as the first Exploration Upper Stage, or EUS, which will allow the SLS to transport larger, heavier payloads of over 45 tonnes. The contract also includes structural test articles and a core stage pathfinder. NASA's new funding will allow Boeing to start construction of the third core stage. That's the one which will be used on the historic Artemis III mission, which will return astronauts to the lunar surface and it will allow Boeing to start ordering equipment and materials needed for future launch vehicle construction. Artemis III will use the initial modules of the Lunar Gateway Space Station and the expendable lander to achieve the first lunar landing of the Artemis program. The 2024 flight is planned to touch down around the lunar South Pole region, with two astronauts staying there for about a week. The SLS launch system being used for the first three Artemis missions will use an interim cryogenic propulsion upper stage to send the Orion spacecraft to the Moon. But Boeing's new contract will see the construction of at least eight more of the more powerful exploration upper stages. The first EUS is slated to fly on the Artemis IV mission, and additional core and upper stages will support other Artemis manned cargo and science missions. Meanwhile, the first complete SLS core stage has now been assembled at NASA's New Orleans facility, following the attachment of the engine section, which will house the RS-25 main engines and provide attachment points for the solid rocket boosters. Boeing says the final and complete assembly of the Artemis I core stage should be completed in December. That's when the RS-25 engines will be installed. NASA will then transport the fully completed core stage on the agency's Pegasus barge to the Stennis Space Center in Mississippi for testing. An Electron rocket has successfully placed a new technology demonstrator satellite into orbit. The Palisade spacecraft was launched into a 1,000-kilometre-high orbit from Rocket Lab's Mahia Peninsula launch complex on New Zealand's North Island East Coast. In keeping with Rocket Lab's tradition of giving its missions light-hearted names, the launch was called as the Crow Flies, a reference to the Corvus satellite platform used for Palisade. Vehicles on internal power. Firm ground power disabled. Reading agency systems. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4... Three, two, one, one. Lift off. Metro. Stage one propulsion is nominal. As the crow flies has left the nest and we have liftoff. 
The forces against the rocket are increasing as Electron travels through the Earth's atmosphere. Soon we'll approach the point where forces are at their strongest, otherwise known as max Q or maximum aerodynamic pressure. So let's check in on Electron's HP battery discharge is nominal. Electron is supersonic, approaching max Q. As you just heard from our GNC operator, we are now past max Q and on the way to our destination, more than 1,000 kilometers above the Earth. Guidance is nominal. Altitude is 30 kilometers. Speed, one kilometer per second. Stage one propulsion is nominal. Prepare for main engine cutoff. Soon, Electron's first and second stages will separate. First, the nine Rutherford engines on stage one will shut off, a process known as MECO. And then the first stage will be jettisoned, which frees the way for the second stage to continue onto orbit. Entering burnout detect mode. 10 seconds till staging. Stage one, MECO. Stage set succeeded. Stage two ignition confirmed. AOS at Chatham Station. Managing cutoff has been confirmed, and Electron's first and second stages have successfully separated. Next up, the fairing will be jettisoned from the kick stage. Let's listen in. Fairing separation succeeded. And we've had confirmation that the fairing have separated. We're three stage minutes and ten seconds into this mission now, and on track for payload deployment at our final destination. Propulsion is nominal, and the crow is flying straight and true for today's mission so far. Guidance is nominal. Altitude 220 kilometers. Seconds Speed, into flight. Electron is looking great as we continue onto orbit. H2 HP is nominal. Stage 2 propulsion is nominal. Electron is looking healthy with a velocity of 1100 kilometers per hour and an altitude of 295 kilometers ahead of battery hot swap. One of the unique things about our Rutherford engine is that its fuel is fed by electric pumps. We're coming up to the point in the flight where the batteries powering those electric pumps are fully drained, so we do what we call a battery hot swap. We swap power from the two depleted batteries to a third fully charged battery, and then jettison the depleted batteries to provide a much more efficient ride to orbit. HV battery discharge is nominal, approaching hot swap. Hot swap successful. There it is. We have had successful battery hot swap. Electron's trajectory continues to look nominal as we hit seven minutes and five seconds into this mission. We're about one minute away from kick stage separation, and Electron is continuing nominally. Entering stage two burnout detect mode. Another update from Rocket Lab Mission Control. Electron continues nominally on its mission with a current velocity of nearly 25,000 kilometers per hour and an altitude of 437 kilometers. We should have confirmation of second engine cutoff shortly. Guidance is terminal. Vehicle is in transfer orbit. Secure confirmed. Great news from our launch operators, launch operators at Mission Control. Electron's second stage Rutherford engine has shut down as planned. Final destination for as the crow flies is some thousand on kilometers above the Earth which is much farther than we've ever flown before. Palisade was deployed 70 minutes after launch. The spacecraft is a 16-unit CubeSat communications satellite. It features its own onboard propulsion system, as well as a next-generation asteroid digital communication system. And there's advanced solution software, which includes an advanced version of its MAX flight software. The mission was the ninth and highest altitude payload launched by the company so far, flying to twice the altitude of any previous Rocket Lab payload. Meanwhile, work's continuing on Rocket Lab's new launch pad and support facilities at NASA's Wallops Island Launch Complex on the Virginian Mid-Atlantic Coast, which is now expected to be operational early next year. The company's also continuing its research into recovering and reusing Electron core stages after flight. That proposal involves equipping boosters with parachutes and then snagging them using helicopters as they fall out of the sky. Perigee Aerospace has signed an agreement with Southern Launch to start flying rockets from its proposed Whaler's Way launch complex near Port Lincoln on the South Australian Air Peninsula. The deal could see a test flight of the South Korean company's Blue Whale launch vehicle next year. Blue Whale's designed to carry small satellite payloads up to 50 kilograms into low-altitude, high-inclination polar orbits. 
These orbits are commonly used for weather, remote sensing and imaging satellites. The South Australian government is backing the project, declaring it a major state development. It could eventually give Australia three space launch sites, the others being the Woomera rocket range in outback South Australia's north and Equatorial Launch Australia, which is developing a facility in the Northern Territory and already has a launch contract to fly sounding rockets for NASA next year. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study by scientists at Monash University has found that air pollution is linked to increased cardiovascular and respiratory death rates. The findings, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, is the largest of its kind to investigate the short-term impacts of air pollution on death rates. The research was conducted over a 30-year period, analysing data on air pollution and mortality in 24 countries. A new study has confirmed earlier research showing that replacing meat for protein-rich vegetarian foods like asparagus, soy and buckwheat would reduce the amount of land required for food production by up to 50% and provide diets with just as many nutrients as meat. The findings, published in the journal Scientific Reports, are based on studies looking at what would happen if Americans replaced only beef in their diets, and then what would happen if they replaced not only beef, but also poultry and pork. They found it would significantly reduce the amount of nitrogen fertiliser used and the level of greenhouse gas emissions produced. Mind you, plant-based diets would require extra irrigation, amounting to a 5-15% to rise in food-related water use. A new study has found that people who believe their lives are subjected to uncontrollable external forces are more likely to become problem gamblers than those who directly link their actions with more tangible results. A report in the Journal of Economic Behaviour and Organisation examined data from the Australian Household Income and Labour Dynamics Survey to see whether specific personality characteristics impact on gambling habits. The authors were looking at people's locus of control, a psychological term that captures people's beliefs about the nature of the relationship between their own behaviour and its consequences. People with strong internal locus of control believe events in their lives happen because of their own actions while those with a strong external locus of control tend to blame external factors for any fortunes or misfortunes they experience. The authors found that people who believe that life's controlled by outside factors which they can't influence, or that fate controls their circumstances, were more likely to become problem gamblers. The data also showed that they're usually young, extroverted, single men, more likely to be without partners, typically have lower household incomes, and are more likely to reside in major cities. The data results also showed that problem gamblers were more likely to have lower emotional stability when compared with average Australians. They also found that traits like higher conscientiousness and openness to new experiences reduced the likelihood of becoming a problem gambler. Interestingly, a larger family size is associated with a lower propensity to be a gambler for both genders, which probably means that those with children are less likely to engage in gambling. And married men are also less likely when compared with their unmarried counterparts. A new study has examined the homing abilities of the world's largest reptile, the Essurine or saltwater crocodile. Scientists attached satellite tracking devices to eight captured salties in Australia's Northern Territory in order to see how effective relocating crocs away from people really is. A report in the journal PLOS One claims five of the crocs were moved up to 320 kilometres from their capture sites, while the remaining three were left where they were caught. Trackers showed that the five relocated salties headed back to home by way of the sea, but they then hit a snag in the form of the Coburg Peninsula, a spit of land jutting way out into the ocean, which they were never able to make it around. 
Two of the crocs left at the capture sites barely moved, but one intrepid animal swam some 900 kilometres over six months before returning home. No one's quite sure yet what his agenda was. The findings mean that crocs' homing abilities make it tricky to relocate them away from areas where crocs and people are likely to run into one another. But then again, it also seems that major landmass boundaries, such as the Coburg Peninsula, can prevent them from returning to where they're not welcome. An increase in pet owners feeding their pooches raw meat-based diets has prompted Swiss researchers to test levels of potentially harmful bacteria in commercial pet foods. A report by the Royal Society Open Science claims they found almost three-quarters of all samples tested did not meet European Union standards for a group of common stomach bugs in pet food. And nearly two-thirds of samples contained antibiotic-resistant bacteria, some of which also had the potential to transmit diseases to humans. Researchers say raw meat diets usually consist of the byproducts of animals slaughtered for human consumption, but they don't contain preservatives or undergo pasteurization. Science is all about critical thinking. It's a search for the truth. Don't just take someone's word for it. Test the claim. See if it's factual and stands up, or if it's just a great steaming pile of woo. That's what the skepticism movement is all about. It's a search for the truth. And remember, scientific facts don't care if you like them or not. Australian skeptics have now released details of this year's national convention, Skepticon 2019, which is being held in December at the University of Melbourne. The stars of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe will be this year's special guests. With the details, we're joined by Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. We're covering everything from uh, psychic busting, sting projects to actually sort of reveal how people who talk to the dead don't really talk to the dead, all the way through to critical thinking and uh, various aspects of conspiracy theories, cults, you name it. We always cover a plethora of subjects at these conventions. Who are the special guests this year? Special guests are the, what, the Skeptical Guide to the Universe, which is probably the most popular skeptical podcast in the world. Next to Space Time and Space Nuts, it is my favourite podcast. It is the sort of go-to podcast for a lot of people. A lot of people come to Australian skeptics via the SGU. They don't realise, some of them don't realise there's a sceptical movement in Australia until they hear about it on the SGU. Five people who run this podcast are all coming out here for the first time for about uh, five years. They came out in 2014 in Sydney. Now they're back again in Melbourne. Also coming out is Susan Gerbeck, who's a Wikipediatrician who works with a, a broad network of people from around the world that she's developed of going through Wikipedia pages and making sure that they call out pseudoscience when it appears and they go through and do properly referenced annotations and edits to Wikipedia pages, pointing out that when something is up there, it shouldn't just be um, spouting a believer's line. There should be some truth in there. She's also been involved in some psychic stings. They actually went along to sessions of people who talked to the dead having planted information around on Facebook, etc., to try and get them to say things that this group has a false because they made it up. That was very effective and a lot of publicity, especially in America, where it took place and she's coming out. That'll be interesting. Basically, it's skeptics' activism, which is always good to see. When's it on and where can you get tickets? Tickets you can get from the website, which is skepticon.org.au and the event itself is on the first weekend of December. The 7th and 8th of December at the University of Melbourne and there will be some ancillary events happening on a few days before as well but all the information is up there at skepticon.org.au and you can buy tickets there as well. And that's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web that I find interesting or amusing. 
Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary, and you can also find us on the Spacetime with Stuart Gary YouTube channel. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 